Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as always. This is episode 41. I am absolutely excited about today's interview. We have the great Sandy Gennaro joining us here in just a couple of moments. You are not going to want to miss this conversation. Uh, Sandy is such an inspirational guy and just has limitless energy uh, and such a great story. So please stay tuned after this message from Lost Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Lost Cabos Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Lost Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Lost Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Lost Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Lost Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Lost Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Lost Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at lostcabosdrumsticks.com Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Lost Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Lost Cabos Drumsticks. All right, everybody. As I mentioned, the great Sandy Gennaro is going to be joining us here in just a couple of moments. Sandy, of course, you will know from his work with Cindy Lauper, uh, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, the Pat Travers Band. Sandy has just played with so many great groups, the Monkees. I mean, come on. Uh, Sandy also, uh, you know, spends some time now doing motivational speaking. And I think you will hear in this interview that this guy has it figured out. Uh, he's just such a positive human being. Um, and and limitless energy. I was just uh, so thrilled to have him on the show, taking some time out of his schedule to talk with us. So help me welcome to the drum shuffle, Sandy Gennaro. Good morning, Sandy. How you doing today? Good morning, Jamie. I'm doing just fine. I'm, I'm enjoying this day in Nashville for sure. It's a beautiful day. The first time the sun came out in about four days. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's kind of odd. It's almost like we're living in Seattle right now in this section of the really? country. <laughs> so really? It's, it's different. Well, hey, Sandy, thanks so much for taking time to come on the drum shuffle. We really do appreciate the time that you're, uh, that you're giving to us. And uh, I think we're going to have a great hang today. Yeah, me too. And I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, for sure. For sure. So, Sandy, um, you know, I I know that you started uh, drumming at a very early age. Um, Why don't you walk our crowd through how you became a drummer and tell us where you grew up and all those good things? Well, basically, I grew up um, I grew up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, Little Italy, in a, in a you know four five story walk up. And uh, one Christmas, at the age of two or three, I received a toy snare drum. It's about thirteen inches diameter right now and about five inches high. Uh, but it was a toy, basically, and it had sticks with it and. When I received that drum, something went off in me where I just, my parents told me that I would not leave that drum alone. And I thought it was a novel concept uh, of banging something, banging on something with sticks 
and being allowed to do it. And I, <laughs> I, I really, I really got off on that concept. And not only that, but my parents were fans of, um, my dad in particular was a big band fan. Um, they both were into like, you know, big band music, Tommy Dorsey and Jimmy Dorsey and with drummers that my dad was a big fan of drummer, drummers, Louis Belson, Buddy Rich, uh, Gene Krupa, like that. And he used to play, play the big band music around the house. And he would point out like when a dr- drum solo would happen or one song I remember in particular hearing was Sing, Sing, Sing with Louis Belson on the drums and that floor tom solo. And, that, and, and he pointed out, he goes, hey, Sam, that's, that's a drum. That's a drummer drumming. And I was always enamored by the sound of the instrument. And not only the sound of the instrument, but rhythm. You know, the, what makes people dance and what makes me bang on the kitchen table with a butter knife and, you know, bang on my, my parents' dashboard of my dad's car uh, with my, you know, just banging. And any time a song would come on, I would just just bang along with the drums and, you know, not, not necessarily in time or whatever, but so that's what got me going. And I was always interested in rhythm, but never having actually seen a drummer on stage in front of an audience, like a video or TV or a scene with my eyes, what a drummer does until February 9th, 1964, when the Beatles appear on Ed Sullivan. <laughs> yeah. And I saw, I saw a band play music and I saw a drummer drumming. And not only was he drumming some awesome, you know, in some awesome music, but the, the, the crowd, the enthusiasm that the screaming girls and the enthusiasm that that crowd had really did something to me because I had no idea that drumming and music could do that to an audience. And from that point on, I visualized me behind Ringo's drum set looking out at the crowd. And that's what I wanted. That was my motivation. And from then on, I, I, I would ask my mother for a drum set every day for months and months. <laughs> and she would say, all right, save your allowance. So we'll get you a drum set. And New Year's Eve, 1965, and I have the receipt hanging in front of me in my office. Um, we went down to the Lower East Side of Manhattan, a little mom and pop. Don't ask me why we went on New Year's Eve, but we went. And my dad had passed away at that point, so my uncle went with us. And, um, and I brought home a drum set. And then from that point on, um, I, I took lessons, and uh, I was able to join a band. And just to make a long story short, uh, because we don't have, a, uh, you know, we, we could have three hours here if it, if it was up to me. But um, uh, I joined a high school band, you know, a band that we played local dances and uh, sock hops after basketball games. And that's where it all started, right there. And at that point, we had moved to Staten Island when I got my drum set, which enabled me because we had a private house and it enabled me to rehearse and take lessons and all of that. And uh, playing in cover bands, I, I, I gradually got into bigger, bi- bigger cover bands. And at 16, I played my first bar. Um, I don't know how I got in there legitimately because you had to be at that point at 18 to drink in, in, uh, in New York. Yeah. So I, I started playing bars and then I, I joined the band and went on the road playing cover material and, um, uh, playing all clubs all through the Midwest, uh, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, uh, 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 Illinois, Indiana, Ohio. Um, so we, I did that for about a year and a half, just playing six nights a week, five sets a night. And on our day off, we would travel to the next town, set up our gear and play again. And that basically was my education because we played all the, now what's known as classic rock, but all the album-oriented rock at that point, which was Zeppelin and Cream and The Who and um, Aerosmith and uh, Mountain and all of those those bands from the late 60s, early 70s. And that's, what's, that, that's, that's what basically was my college education in rock and roll, was playing every single night, five hours a night, uh, that's... And uh, you know it was it was grueling, but it, at the at that point I just loved every second of it. But looking back on it, with the suitcases strapped on top of the van and <laughs> all our gear inside the van, and the female singer always got the passenger seat, so me and the whoever wasn't driving had to sit on the amps in the back of the van, and 
We had no roadies. We had no itinerary. We would set up our gear at the hotel, at the, at the venue and then ride around town looking for a motel and we would share rooms and it was the best, basically it wasn't the best time of my life, but it was at that point in time, it was heaven because I was playing in front of audiences and watching people dance to my music and all of that. Yeah, that's, man, that's, that's a lot of woodshedding. What's that? Uh, that's a lot of woodshed and five, you know, five oh, hours a sure, night, six nights a week. It that's, sure is. And, wow. And it was a lot of work too, because at that point in time, Marshall amps came into vogue and SB, <laughs> SBT bass amps came into vogue. And, but what wasn't in vogue yet was miking drums. So right. I had to play uh, on mic drums uh, in front of like a volume happy guitar and bass player. It was like, it was grueling and it took a while for me to open my hands the next morning after five hours of playing. Um, so it, I, I got really, really in good shape, my, my endurance and all of that. Anyway, fast forward to 1976, I moved to Los Angeles to try to get my first big break playing non-cover material. And I was there for three years and uh, you know, I talk about in my presentation, I talk about swimming with the sharks. Uh, and, and L.A. water has the biggest, most ferocious sharks in the music business water. And I'll tell you what, after three years, uh, I, I, I was made promises that weren't kept. I was, um, you know, given a promise that I was going to get paid a certain amount, didn't get paid. I was screwed over. Anyway, I was at the end of my rope three years of trying and being screwed over three, 3,000 miles away from home as bummed out as I ever was. My, my, what I call my practice marriage at the time was not working out. I didn't have enough money in the bank to pay the rent. I was working a day job so I can afford to go, you know, on auditions for original material. I refused to play cover material for a living ever again. And then that, that promise I kept to myself. But that being said, I was really bummed out, and uh, I kept having that picture of Ringo uh, and the audience, and I didn't want to let that dream go. So I just prayed for inspiration. I, I pay, play, prayed to God about what I should do next. Don't, don't give me a gig. I want to know what, give me a sign of what I could do next. Show me the door, and I'll kick the door down. And about three days later, I found myself riding around in L.A. L.A. It was like a puppet on a string. I drove into a library parking lot. I went to the reference section and I got a hold of a, a billboard magazine put out talent management directory every year. And I wasn't allowed to take it take because it was a reference uh, piece. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't allowed to take it out of the library. I copied down the names and addresses of management uh, managers that managed the 50 bands that I liked the best. And I, I you know, that was a cross reference. So, um, one of the 50, I went home with that list and I, on a Remington typewriter, one letter at a time typed a resume and the resume just basically existed with my personal information, a picture of me and my drum set. It was my last dish effort to try to get something going in my career. And one, this is important factors that the, I, while I was in LA at a party, I met Carmine Apice, who uh, everybody knows if you're a drummer, sure. uh, he played with Vanilla Fudge and went on Rod Stewart and uh, Ozzy Osbourne, Ted Nugent, Rod, Jeff, Jeff Beck, all of that. He befriended me. I befriended him. I kind of took me under my, he took me under his wing and uh, he was my idol growing up. I used to go see Vanilla Fudge and all his clinics in Brooklyn, and he was my idol. So it was kind of cool me friending one of my idols. Anyway, I called him and I said, Carmine, can I use you as a res reference on my resume? He said, sure. So I sent the, that resume out to the 50 managers, and one of the managers I sent it to was Peter Grant, who was the manager of Led Zeppelin, who lived in England, but his address was Swansong Records in, in New York, uh, Led Zeppelin's label. Sure. It got to the label. It never got forwarded to Peter Grant. The attorney for Led Zeppelin unmistakably or un, unexplicably, inexplicably opens up my resume. Right at that point in time, he's close to a deal. He's shopping a deal with uh, songs written by Michael Bolton. This is before Michael Bolton was famous. And it was a band project he was shopping. And even though it was Michael's songs and, uh, and Bruce Kulick also wrote, wrote some of the songs on, on that. 
on that demo. Now, labels are getting back in touch with Steve Weiss saying, we want to see this band. We like the material. And Steve Weiss didn't have a band. He needed a drummer. He had a guitar player and a singer, but he needed a drummer and a bass player. Right at that point in time, my resume arrives. He opens it. It's not even addressed to him. And he opens it and he sees my resume and he goes, wow, I need a drummer. And he sees Carmine's name on my resume. Well, lo and behold, Steve Weiss used to be the attorney for Carmine's band, the Vanilla Fudge, years before. So he knew Carmine, calls him. Carmine vouches for me. The next call Steve Weiss makes is to me in L.A., asking me to fly to New York to audition for this yet unnamed band. And I found that amazing. And, it, and, you know, I'll go into this a little bit later when I talk about beats. But, um, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta keep going. If you have that dream in your head and that picture of your head, in your head of you being a success in whatever you want to do, you have to hold on to that and you have to keep going towards that goal. No matter what obstacles are placed in front of you, just pray, pray for help by God and the universe. And if the faith is strong enough and you keep, and you use your tenacity and a positive attitude, it, it will happen. So anyway, I flew to New York, I got the gig and there I was, um, you know, about maybe three weeks later, we, we auditioned for about five or six labels. We got, uh, we got signed to Polygram on a seven album deal, two albums guaranteed. And a, a little while after that, I found myself in Criteria Studios in Miami being produced by the one and only legendary Tom Dowd. Wow. And, you know, and I, I, I sometimes think about that. You know, what if I didn't, what if I just gave up in LA or whatever? And uh, Jamie, my life, and we will just uh, explore the tip of the iceberg in this conversation, but my life is full of synchronicity, synchronic, whatever, whatever the word is, serendipity. It, it, my life is full of situations like that where, where out of nowhere things happen where things look really, really bleak. And, uh, you know... Uh, Whatever, I, I don't want to get into that too much. But anyway, so Blackjack was my first record. Um, uh, we toured with Peter Frampton. It was moderately successful, but me being in, involved with uh, Polygram Records now, um, uh, I met at a Blackjack rehearsal, I met this guy named Benny Mardonis, and he was getting ready to do his record. He asked me to play on his record, and off that record became a, a hit single called Into the Night. And again, now he was on Polygram as well. And then being involved with Polygram, I got to know a lot of A&R people. They suggested that I call Pat Travers, who was also on Polygram in 1981, um, call Pat Travers' manager because rumor has it that Tommy Aldrich is going to be let go from the Pat Travers band. So I got in touch with the management, and that led to my gig with the Pat Travers band. And uh, that Pat Travers band led to my gig with Cindy Lauper. Um, and Cindy Lauper led to my gig with the monkeys and on and on and on. And Cindy's, Cindy's gig also led to my gig with Joan Jett about five years later. Not only that, but again, I don't want to go too far into it, but, um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's basically that, that's how it started. And one gig led to the next, next to the next. And you know, it's funny thing is Jamie, that, you know, if you want to be a doctor, you go to, you do all the right things to be a doctor. You go to college, you go to medical school, you go to specialty school, you take your residency, you pass all the tests, you study, you pass, you do everything the right way in order to become a doctor, and boom, you get your, your shingle and you hang the shingle out and you're a doctor. In the music business, yeah, I, I had that vision of the audience. I wanted to play in front of an audience like that, but I had no idea. You don't map it out. Well, okay, I'm going to play with this guy, and then that's going to lead to this gig, and that's going to – no, you have no idea. Right. Being a drummer, being a musician, or any – for that matter, anything in the arts, you've got to have like a blind faith that stuff will work out. It's a positive anticipation that things will work out. You don't know how in the world they're going to work out, right. but you've got to have faith that they will. You can't think, 
Oh, I'll never make it. Oh, there's so many drummers. Oh, I'll never be able to do that. Uh, once you start thinking like that, you know, they start, the thoughts like that start out as like a flimsy little cobweb, but then you think about them day and night when you wake up, when you, before you go to bed, and you think about them all day, and they become like a steel mesh. It becomes like a steel mesh jacket that you wear, a heavy weight on your shoulders all day, every single day. And the more you think negatively, the further down that pit you're going to go. Yeah, I, well, yeah. I mean, you you bring up a fantastic point, and that is there is no book to how to become a rock star or a jazz star or a you know a, a famous drummer. There there is no guide to that. And you know, it, one of our past guests was the great um, Rod Morgenstein, and he said something to me that that has just really resonated with me in my career, and that is luck favors the prepared. You know, so if you if you're prepared and you're willing to take that that plunge, you know, uh, Sandy Gennaro just happened to type out, you know, 50 resumes and it landed in front of the right guy. But you took that plunge to do it and you were ready to fly to New York and do whatever you had to do. You were prepared and and the luck met that preparation, which is just awesome. Correct. But you have to have the faith that something good will come of it. You can't just, oh, let me go ahead and send these out. I, nobody's going to answer me. Nobody answered me. 49 managers did not answer that resume, did not acknowledge. Just one did. And he wasn't even addressed to him. Now, does that, yeah, I, don't, I personally don't believe in the word luck. And I, I don't believe, you know, I kind of believe in like this uh, the saying that says, uh, "Be at the, you're at the right place at the right time." Well, what what inspires you to go to that place? What inspired me to go to that library and sit there for an hour and a half, jotting down the names and addresses of fifty different managers of bands that I liked? You think that Led Zeppelin is going to fire John Bonham and hire this guy from that's living in L.A., this New York guy with a picture of his drum set with one with one reference? No, I didn't think that I was going to get a gig with Led Zeppelin, but maybe Peter Grant had a little baby band that, in the style of Led Zeppelin because I was a big fan of Bonzo or maybe Peter Grant. But you know what? It wasn't an accident that that happened. That was to me, I look at the universe or whatever you want to call it, a higher power, God, you know, the things that make things like that happen. It's like a big chessboard in the sky where it's where a, a source, the source of our life is basically having a little chessboard, a chessboard up there, like moving the puzzles around. And, you know, you, I got, you know, I, I may get a call from somebody I haven't heard from in five or six years or you know, the example I always give in my presentation about, um, uh, and again, the examples are numerous, Jamie, but I was with the Pat Travers band touring arenas in 1981, and I was in a real hurry one night to get out of the dressing room. I was the last one in the dressing room. Everybody was waiting for me outside, and I'm rushing out of the dressing room after the gig, and this guy is standing in the doorway, and he's got a camera and a pen. And he's there to see me. He's not there to see Travers. And I, I run into him, basically physically run into him in the doorway. And he goes, hey, man, I'm sorry to bother you. Would you take a minute to sign and take a picture with me? I love the way you play. Or you're, you're an inspiration to me. I'm a bass player, blah, blah, blah. So I didn't blow him off. I could have pulled a rock star card and said, sorry, bro. I can't talk to you now. And bye. But I didn't. I said, this guy doesn't even have a pass on. He must have BSed his way backstage in this arena. And... He's a fan of mine. I mean, he ain't, he ain't even there to see Pat. So I took the time and engaged him. And he was very, very appreciative. And I gave him my card. And of course, he asked me to get him a gig because he was a bass player. Can you refer me to a gig in Manhattan? Because this was in Connecticut. I said, I don't have time right now. And I can't recommend you unless I hear you play. So here's my address and my phone number. Send me a cassette of your playing, and I'll see what I can do. And I gave him, gave him, and he said, he goes, this is your home number? This is 1981, so it was before cell phones. <laughs> right. This is, this is your home number? He said, I said, yeah. He goes, oh, Sandy, thank you very much. Thank you very much. He gave me the biggest hug 
in the world. And thank you very much. We'll be in touch. I'll send you the cassette. So he sent me a cassette a couple of weeks later. I tried to get him a gig. It didn't really happen. But he turned into kind of a buddy, like a phone friend. And he was always very cool on the phone, very curious about what I was doing, whatever. Three years later, Jamie, three years, he called me and he said, Sandy, um, I just signed this girl to Epic Records. She's going to be the biggest thing on the planet. I want you to be in her band. You're the only drummer I want in her band. Uh, David, I can't join a new band. I'm just coming off an arena tour. I got to get something more, a little bit more substantial. He goes, this is going to be as substantial as you'll ever need. I may not pay you at the, what you need at the beginning, but I'm going to take care of you. Please, Sandy, have a leap of faith now and come down and meet this girl and hear some of this material. You're not going to believe it. So I went down to the hit factory and the, the woman turned out to be Cindy Lauper. She was working on her first record where girls just have, want to have fun and time after time and all of that. I ended up joining her band. Long story short, it was the biggest and best tour. Well, one of the biggest tours I ever did and one of the best tours in terms of joining her band, playing bars with 12 people at the bar in it, nobody else in the bar. And, and it, it, over a six-month period after playing on MTV and all of that, and the Tonight Show and all of that, it grew into an arena-sized gig, a worldwide arena-sized gig in a, in a space of six months. So that was the magic about that, where I saw and I was involved in it. was in the eye of the hurricane, playing small little stinky cat piss bars, and then ending up six months later in, in multiple nights in arenas around the world. And it was awesome. And the punchline is, Jamie, is that November of 1985, this is after being on the road for 11 months, uh, backstage, you know, everybody knows, everybody that has been, been in an arena kind of band, they know there's a lot, of, a lot of girls backstage and a lot of fans that are willing to party and all of that. But there was one woman I met in Charlotte, North Carolina, November 23rd, and we, I met her. Uh, and we started dating long distance and she moved up to New York in 1985 and we, we got married in 1990 and, uh, we had our first child in 1994 and we're still together now. And that was 30 going on 33 years ago. So I, and, and she's the love of my life and she's the, 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 this is my for real marriage, not my practice marriage. And it all started with meeting a chance encounter on the Pat Travers tour, meeting a bass player uh, heading to the bus. It all That's happened correct. because of that. That's correct. But it's my spirit of service, which is the, the S and B servicing other people that appreciate you and showing that appreciation in return instead of pulling the rock star or the rotten bigger than you attitude. And I never had that. I never had that attitude Well, I'm better than you because I'm playing arenas and you're playing bars. No. Right. And I, I answer every email I get about, you know, fans or other drummers asking me questions or whatever. I, I always answer every email. When I do a clinic, I'm there until the very last guy wants an autograph or whatever. I always was the type that believed that and if I can get a little bit on the vulgar side for a second, this is the saying I have, and I don't say it in church, but every nobody, nobody on this planet shits Hagendas. Everybody <laughs> wipes their butt. Right. Everybody and what I say in my presentation is everybody comes into this world the same way, man. The same way. Yeah. And everybody's gonna go out the same way. So to think because of what you do or what your job is or what color your skin or how much money you make or what kind of house you live in thinks that you, if that enables you to think that you're better than anybody else where well, you're barking up the wrong tree. And when you pass on into the next realm of our existence, when you leave your body in, in a box, you're going to leave all that behind. And what people are going to talk about you when you're laying in the box is not what you did or bought for yourself, but it's what you did and what the kind of advice and what you enabled another person to do. In other words, how you helped other people, how you affected other people is what they're going to talk about, how you affected them positively. 
And that's what you, your legacy is going to be. And I always think about that. Even when I'm in Kroger or when I'm in a supermarket and somebody's scanning my groceries, I look at the person's name tag and say, hey, Jimmy, how you doing today, buddy? And he looks up and he smiles. It's the first time in all day that somebody acknowledged him by name. Yeah. How you doing today? You create small talk. Meanwhile, Jimmy, Jimmy's, uh, you know, has his mind off the scanning groceries for a second and he's looking in my face talking to me. And that to me, you know, that to me is worth, worth the time invested. And it could be something as incremental or as insignificant as that saying hi to somebody in a supermarket and talking to them by name, or it could be giving somebody advice that changes their life or you give, or me giving somebody drum lessons for years and they turn on, turn out to be a, a really good, successful drummer, uh, you know, that is so gratifying to me. And that's what people are going to say about me after I'm, I'm gone is like what I did for them. And, and the word is altruism and everybody should look that word up. And it's altruism is the, the, um, the virtue of thinking outside yourself. It's not about you. It's about your family, it's whatever. I, I can go on and on, Jamie. I don't want to. I don't want to step on your toes in terms of your questions that you had. But I can go on and on. I get very passionate about that subject. But um, well, and, I, and, and you know what? If you want to know, and, and it's not like my opinion. This is not my opinion. This is fact, and this is the law of the universe. What goes around comes around. Yin and yang. Every action has a reaction, whether it's good or whether it's bad. Yeah. So if you put forth good, positive things, whether it's saying something nice, doing something nice, giving something to other people to make their lives better, making somebody better off for having crossed your path, the universe will take care of your ass. And trust me on that because I am, I am sitting here as a living example of you call it spontaneous, uh, serendipity, you call it synchronicity or whatever you want, but it's, it's, a, it's a law. It's not something that I make up. It's a law of the universe, period. You're absolutely right. And, you know, I mean, I, I feel like I'm ready to run through a wall, um, you know. And <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because it's funny you, you use those words because the first presentation I gave the CEO that gave me a little testimonial and he says, my employees after hearing Sandy are ready to a brick, ready to run through a brick wall. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, it I, is. let's transition to that just a little bit. I mean, you know, your career is just, it has been just incredible. I mean, you know, and I remember specifically the, the first time I saw you playing drums, um, you know, it was with Cindy, um, you know, so I, I immediately took note and that was, you know, that album of hers was probably one of the biggest albums of the 80s period, bar right. none. You know, I mean, it was just huge. It was everywhere. But, you know, your career has transitioned. You know, you're still playing, obviously, but you're doing a lot of speaking engagements now. And I, I want to make sure that I get this in here. You know, you, you call your uh, your program beating the drums and beating the odds. And, and we've referred to beats a few times, but that's an acronym that stands for belief, enthusiasm, attitude, tenacity and service. And you've touched on some of those in our conversation up to this point. But, you know, tell our crowd a little bit about why you decided to start giving back in that way as a, as a motivational speaker. Okay. Well, it's a, just another item of karma. Okay. Because again, uh, I, again, I was with Pat Travers in the early eighties, uh, 80, 80 to 83. And then he called me back in 2010 and I went back with him in 2010, uh, somewhere around 2015, we're playing in San Diego in an arena in San Diego opening for a big, really big band. I forget who it was. And as a practice, I throw drumsticks out to the audience. And during the encore, during our last song, I'm looking in the audience to see, I'm looking for a handicapped person, somebody in a wheelchair or a cane, or I'm looking for an elderly person that brought his, that brought the, the son, the grandson or granddaughter to the gig or a parent with little kids or whatever. And I, I, at this gig in San Diego, I did what I do every gig. 
and throw throw a drumstick out to the people that I described. And in, in this gig in San Diego was a, was a handicapped woman in a wheelchair. I'm going to try to condense this story very much. When you ask me how I got into speaking, this is how I got into speaking. The husband of the handicapped woman that I threw the drumstick Facebooked me the next day. And he was very appreciative. Sandy, you had no idea what you did. You singled out my wife and you could have threw it to anybody, whatever. Uh, I'm, I'm very appreciative. What can I do for you? Nothing. His name was Mike Pierce. Uh, nothing, Michael. Hey, well, listen, Sandy, let me buy you a cup of coffee. I'm coming into Nashville and I'm a motivational speaker and I'm speaking at Bridgestone Arena. And I want you to come to the presentation and we'll have a coffee prior and I'll buy you a coffee and we'll, we'll uh, small talk. I said, no problem, Michael. So I went to I went to meet him. We had a coffee. And he asked me how I got, hey, Sandy, how'd you get some of the gigs you've gotten? So I told him the Cindy Lauper guy in the doorway story. And fast forward to his presentation, I'm on the side of the stage and he introduces me and he says, Sandy, do you mind if I tell that Cindy Lauper story to, to my audience? And he told it to his audience. It was the, um, the front office personnel, the future leaders of the Predators, the Nashville Predators hockey team. It was all their business people that he was speaking to. And he told the Cindy Lauper story and he, he correlated the guy, you know, being nice to the guy in the doorway leads to bigger and better things. He correlated that to business and corporate and it got a really good reaction. Leaving Bridgestone that day with Michael, he said to me, Sandy, I'm doing another day long training seminar in Memphis in about three weeks. Could you come to that? Why don't you come to that if you can and tell the story yourself because you have no, you have no problem talking in front of people. I said, no, this is after, after years of doing clinics and, and teaching the music business curriculum at the Drummers Collective, I have no problem speaking to groups. So I went to FedEx a couple of weeks later. I told the story uh, and it got a standing ovation. I told a doorway story, but I, I withheld the name of Cindy until the very, very end. And when the very, very end of the story came, I said, in, 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 in acting in this manner, thinking outside myself, I wanted to serve this fan because he was so excited about meeting me, led to my involvement with this song. And I plugged in my phone and time after time played, and uh, it got a standing ovation. Leaving FedEx that day, Michael said, Sandy, you have a career in front of you if you choose to take it. You should be a motivational speaker, not only with that story, but you have many, many other stories, and you correlate them, and I'll help you correlate them, how they, how they relate to business, how it relates to students, how it relates to people in general, and you'll have a career waiting for you. I said, you know what, Michael, that's a good idea, and that's how my speaking started. That's awesome. I mean, that's just, that's awesome. Just an, the universe giving you another huge opportunity. That's it. And you know what? I spoke about two or three opportunities that I got from the universe. And there are dozens over the course of my life, little ones and big ones. And you just act in a certain way, you know, whatever, you know, reaps its benefits. And, uh, and that's how I came up with the BEATS uh, uh, acronym. And, uh, you know, in my presentation, I play, play along, you know, talking about my Joan Jet gig, I play along with, you know, a verse and a chorus of uh, hate myself for loving you or I love rock and roll. I have a drum set there. I have a PowerPoint presentation. I get the audience involved. I, I, I call a volunteer up from the audience to play a little We Will Rock You by Queen. And it's all a very entertaining presentation, but it's also very, very informative. And I get nothing but positive feedback. I, and I have a, an evaluation sheet that I pass out and they fill out voluntarily. And I ask, what can I change to make my beats presentation better? The only negative thing I comment I got out of getting hundreds of these evaluations was you have to build in a bathroom break because I didn't want to miss a word. That you said. <laughs> well, that's a good problem to have, Sandy. It is. <laughs> that's a great problem so to that's, have. You know, that's basically, Jamie, um, that's basically how I got into speaking. And I'm, I'm sure the drummers out there and musicians out there that are listening to this, you know, if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, or even 50s, you're wondering what you're going to do when you're 70. And, you know, you, you hope that you make enough money because, you know, Lord knows there's no pension for a musician, yeah. you know, the, the, so, 
you know, you, you hope that you make enough dough to carry you through your retirement. And I was always wondering, well, am I going to be okay? Well, here is my retirement right now. And, and I'm not going to talk about it. I don't do it for the money, but the money is a really good, good thing when it comes to speaking corporate. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, and I make the joke all the time, kind of my little quip is, you know, rock and roll is a young man's game. You know, I mean, it, it really is. And, <laughs> you know, it's it, it's tough when you get some years on you to, to keep getting, you know, those arena gigs, you know, and, right. and unless you're playing with, you know, what is now considered a classic rock act. Um, right. You know, and I know that you're still playing uh, all the time, and, and I want to share a story with you if I can. I know you've been doing sure. some gigs with um, with Derek St. Holmes, of course, who, you know, famously sang Stranglehold. He was he was in Ted Nugent's band for a lot of years, uh, Whitford St. Holmes. I know you guys have been playing together. Um, years ago, it's probably been, gosh, 20 years ago now, um, a band that I was playing in at the time actually opened up for Derek here in Central. Kentucky and he actually let me play sound check with him what a great guy Derek is you know I mean that was a huge huge opportunity for me you know at the time I think I was probably you know 21 22 years old and I'm getting to you know jam at sound check with Derek St. Holmes you know just a legend or, or, or whatever but talk to our crowd a little bit about you know, you're playing life today. Are you doing lots of sessions, um, you know, living in Nashville? T- tell us a little bit about your playing career today. Well, my playing career today, again, it exists with, uh, I'm playing with Derek and I met Derek and Dave Kasweeney, who is his bass player. I met both of those guys when Travers opened up for Ted Nugent in the early 80s. And the, another special thing about that tour is later you know, when I was touring with Ted Nugent, uh, not as his drummer, but I was in the patch. I was in his opening act, which was the Pat Travers band. Carmine Apathy happened to be the drummer for Ted Nugent on that tour. So it was kind of it was kind of cool, you know, because I got my 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 first big break basically using Carmine as a reference. So now we're touring together and which was kind of awesome. But I met Derek and Dave on that tour. We kept in touch over the years. This was 1981, 82. And then when I finally moved to Nashville in 2014, Derek and Dave were living in Nashville and we got together and we started playing some gigs around Nashville. And that's, that's how it remains today. Um, I'm also going to do some gigs with Mark Farner at Grand Funk Railroad. Uh, that's coming up. I have one gig in, in, uh, towards the end of October this month and one gig in November. And then we'll see where it goes from there. I think it's just a, a sub gig for his usual drummer, but it's, it's an awesome uh, opportunity to play with one of my idols, which Grand Funk was one of my favorite bands growing up. So, and that's kind of cool. But I've done some gigs with, uh, not some gigs, but I played with Mark Farner at the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camps on occasion. So we kind of know each other, and that's how he knew to call me to sub to his drummer. So, and I've done some albums here in Nashville. I mean, it's, it's again, you've got to have a tremendous amount of faith if you come to a place and you're my age and you have all that rock and roll water under the bridge, so to speak, and you're here and, uh, and there are like hundreds and hundreds of players here in Nashville. Everybody's coming to Nashville. So that's both a blessing and a curse because I can go to any club on any given night and go sit in as a guest. And oh, ladies and gentlemen, we have the blah, 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 blah. But in terms of getting a really big, high-profile gig that's happening right now, well, first they look at age, and then they look at how much is this guy going to want. Because they're a gut, you know, and country music, with all due respect to country music, it doesn't take a lot of technique to play it right. All you need to do is play with a click track and to play for the song, and you, you're, you're eligible, you have what it takes to get the country gig, or even big-time country gig, but there's, it's a supply and demand situation. So, you know, just because you come to L.A., you go to L.A., or you go to New York, or you come to Nashville, doesn't guarantee that you're going to get a gig, because this is, it's a supply and demand situation. So your faith has to, has, has to be first and foremost that it's going to happen. Yeah, you said a mouthful there. I mean, it, it's yep. so it's a tough I did business. A couple of records. 
I did a record with uh, Kip Winger, wrote a Broadway rock Broadway musical, and I played on that soundtrack. The, 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 the soundtrack isn't out yet, but um, I played on that soundtrack. It was a wor- uh, awesome working with Kip Winger. He is just awesome. Very underrated as a composer, very underrated as a person, very underrated as a musician. And uh, I did another record recently uh, with B.B. Buell, who is... Um, uh, Steven Tyler's baby mama. Yeah. And so she's got, she's a singer. Uh, and I did her record, uh, with, uh, the bass player that used to play with Dave Rowe, who used to play with uh, Johnny Cash for 20 years. So I'm like rubbing elbows with these different high profile cats. And I really like Nashville because of Nashville is a very youth oriented, as I explained, a very youth oriented, especially in the country music arena. But um, but there are a lot of people living here, a lot of classic rock type people living here. And those are the people I commiserate with are, are those kinds of people. Yeah, for sure. Well, I know you're staying uh, as busy uh, as as you want to, you know, which is cool. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you've made just an incredible living doing this. Um, Sandy, as we get ready to wrap up here, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, one of the traditions that we have on the drum shuffle, and I think the, the whole conversation has been this, but we always ask our guests for a good piece of advice. So if you can take beats and, you know, surmise it into one great piece of advice for our listeners, what would that be? Um, that's, it's, a, it's one of the hardest questions I've ever had to answer, but it's basically, you have to believe in a higher power, God, or whatever you want to call the higher power, the universe, or whatever. You got to believe that there are good things in store for you in your life. Number one. Number two, you got to believe in yourself and what you have to offer musically, personally, uh, to any situation. You got, you got to have those two things are the, the, the root of the tree that's going to be your career. If you don't believe in a higher power that's at work on our behalf and you don't believe in your ability to make a band, to, to bring something to any band's table, then it, you're, 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 you're shooting, you're throwing darts in a dark room. You know, you may hit it, you may not. But if you want to guarantee that something good is going to happen in your life as far as your career and as far as your believe in what you're doing, just believe in, throw all you have in what you're doing. And when obstacles come up, obstacles are the universe testing you to see how bad you want what's on the other side of that obstacle. So put your head down don't whine about it. Don't think that you're a victim of circumstance. Just put your head down and either go through the obstacle, above it, around it, or underneath it. And then when you come out the other side of that obstacle or that problem or that roadblock, you block, you're that much stronger. And, it, and it, it enhances your self-esteem about your ability to overcome obstacles. And that gives you more strength even to to undertake the next one and just have faith. It's a positive expectancy that you expect something positive to happen. And another, another aspect, if I may take another second, uh, another aspect of, of your personality that you should have is to be grateful for what you have now. Be grateful for what you have now and don't go, oh, shucks, I wish I had this gig. Oh, shucks, I wish I could play as fast as this drummer. Oh, shucks, I wish I could, I wish I could, I wish I could, I wish I could. If you constantly think like that, I wish, I wish, I wish, you'll never have enough. You'll go through your life just always feeling half empty. But if you're grateful for what you have, if you if you lay your pillow on uh, on a if you lay your head on a pillow at night and empty out the glass, you have nothing. Empty out your the glass of your life. Empty it, and then add one thing, one person at a time that you're thankful for. I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for people like Jamie that are interested in what Sandy has to say. I'm very grateful. 
I'm grateful for my talent. I'm grateful for, for Mike Pierce. For, um, blah, blah, blah. Put the stuff in your glass that you start out as empty. Put all the things in your glass that you are grateful for. And if you do that and you constantly have a vibe of being grateful, you'll always have enough. So that's it. Believe in the higher power. Believe in yourself and what you bring to a table in life, not just in a band, not just in your drum set, in life. And everything else will take care of itself. And be grateful for what you have. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Again, I can speak to you, Jamie, about this you know, for a long, long time. And there are a lot of examples that I, I touch upon in my presentation that I haven't even mentioned here, but believe me, it's just, it's fact. It's not fiction. Well, it's great advice for everybody, not just drummers, not just musicians, just everybody. And, and, you know, I know that, that you say, you know, from CEO to janitor, you know, right. everybody can get something from what I have to say. So it right. is, it is my sincere hope that uh, I can get to one of your speaking engagements very soon. I encourage all of our listeners here at the Drum Shuffle to do the same. Uh, I, I know that you can be found at sandygenero.com. You've got all of your performances up on your website. You do a great job keeping it up to date. So folks, uh, look Sandy up. Um, he's even got a contact tab on his website. Uh, Sandy is a very gracious uh, gentleman. He would be more than happy to hear from you, I'm sure. Sandy, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the Drum Shuffle. The invitation is open. Anytime you uh, want to come back, you are always welcome on this program, sir. Well, I appreciate it, Jamie. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really, really appreciate it. And I hope Everyone out there just takes a little bit of what I said and just runs with it. And that, that's it. You'd be, you'd be better off for it. And uh, thank you very much, Jamie. And, and again, if you guys want to contact me through my website, as Jamie mentioned, there's a contact tab on my website. Uh, email me with any questions, comments, or what you thought about this webinar. I'd be happy to return the email. Awesome. Sandy, thanks so much. I hope you have a wonderful day, and we will talk to you very soon. You got it, Jamie. Thank you so much. And you have a great day as well. All right. Thanks, brother. Uh, Bye-bye. Bye. All right, everybody. That's going to do it for episode 41 of the Drum Shuffle. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. We simply can't do what we do here at the show without every single one of you tuning in week after week. Speaking of which, go ahead and hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to listen in today. It helps us tremendously to continue to grow. And I promise you, you are not going to want to miss some of the episodes that we have coming up in short order. Next week, I'm going to be joined by the great Bernie Dressel. You like the swing music? You like the big band? You like the jump, jive, and wail? Bernie Dressel is going to be here next week. What a great guy he is. You are not going to want to miss that episode, I promise. We love hearing from you throughout the week. Of course, our email address is the Podcast at gmail.com. Send your emails our way. We do answer every single one of those. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com. And of course, you can find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. We'll talk to all y'all next week. So until then, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers. Cheers.